This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the greatest movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight, for our 150th episode, we discuss the most widely considered greatest movie of all time, Citizen Kane from 1941. But before we get to the movie, first let's just take a moment to appreciate 150 episodes. Yeah, 150 episodes... That's quite a lot, actually. I didn't even realize how much 150 was until I started going back through our catalog and realized that we have been doing this for quite some time now. It will be three calendar years, or our third anniversary would be the 26th of February, unless you count when we recorded it. We recorded it on the 25th of February, I'm pretty sure, and then released our first episode the next day from 2020 so it'll be three years at the end of the month yeah it's been a long and interesting ride to say the least so any favorite episodes or favorite moments that you can remember okay i'm gonna start with a negative favorite memory which is my favorite film when i was a kid the greatest show on earth and then doing this show again or watching it again is now and going, wow, was this bad? But then, I mean, there was some of our uh, shows that we've had guests on have been some of my favorites. For whatever reason, having a guest kind of helps. It energizes you, clearly. Yeah. But a couple of my favorites was Bull Durham with Roger Walkoff and uh, Alien with uh, Rob Conlon, simply because I had never really thought about Alien or was kind of outside of my comfort zone. So having somebody who was a little more passionate about it than I, I enjoyed that. I also enjoyed the birthday episode where the entire family was on, even though if we were walking all over each other for the most part, but we did My Fair Lady. I enjoyed Pillow Talk with Mom when she came in to try and pinch hit for you that week, and then you recovered just in time in order to do the episode. That was always a favorite one. I, oddly enough, actually enjoyed having Sarah on for The Great Dictator, even if I give her a lot of crap. I I do remember that one because I did the famous ending speech at the end of there and great scenes by Tom. But uh, I still think as many great guests as we've had and all the the favorite moments doing some of those movies, it does energize me too when you get somebody that's really enthusiastic about a movie that I'm really kind of hit or miss on, Alien would be a great example. Rob's got a fervent enthusiasm for both Alien and specifically Aliens from 86 Mm -hmm. that's infectious. I think a lot of our guests have brought that, but I'm sorry, the moment that takes the cake for me, outside of doing All the President's Men on election night, which was fun, but it has to be, you starting off the podcast singing, Hitler, he's only got one ball. <laughs> yeah, I- I'm glad I found that. Oh, it- it's still probably the biggest moment of the show. 
Oh, well. I also enjoyed the character actor show we did. I'd love to do a few more of those. Or some sort of like group thing like that. Because I love character actors. I mean, that's one of the reasons why is you were just commenting because we'll get to that with our Academy Award nominations, but to Leslie, Stephen Root's in it. And you were going, <laughs> yes, you have a man crush on Stephen Root. I'm like, well, yeah, because I've never seen him in anything where I don't think he's absolutely amazing. And I'm pretty sure he's in that Marlowe movie with Liam Neeson coming up this summer. Well, that would be great. Yeah, I think we'll have to do another couple of list episodes the difficulty is, is trying to fit those in without reducing our episode load. I know those particular episodes have been popular. Our top 1950s movies was actually a very popular episode of ours. And so we'll have to fit those in around some different things. I'm sure we have different ideas. Eventually, we're going to be able to get to our favorite directors of all time. I don't think we're in any position to say who are the best directors of all time yet, since there are so many of them that we haven't covered on the show, Uh, especially the foreign directors like Ingmar Bergman, Fellini. Truffaut. Yeah, Francois Truffaut. Just a lot of them. I mean, we've really only covered Kurosawa in any detail. We've covered at least two of his movies, and we have probably at least a dozen more to go that are all considered in the top you know, maybe 150, 200 greatest films. But there there are a lot of different ones to choose from yet that uh, we've got to get to. And we just have a lot of material that if we really want this to be an all-encompassing show, we're going to have to get to in order to end anywhere where we find some level of completion or at least that I'd be satisfied that we've covered as much as we possibly could and truly arrived at what is the greatest movie of all time. Maybe we should do a list of the greatest movies in the 80s so that I actually have watched some of them because I basically lived in a library from about 1982 until 1988 or 89. So what we need is a Twitter-supported Dana wants to know what the top movies of the 1980s that he hasn't seen list. Yes. Or the other one, which is the first half of the 1990s, when I couldn't get to the movies until they got out on video because I had children. Well, it's not like you were getting to them in the back half of the 90s either. You were still going only to, like, Toy Story and Lion King. (laughs) Well, I got to see uh, Titanic, and I got to see Saving Private Ryan, and... You know. Okay. But it was like a major production because you had to have a babysitter and you had to pay the babysitter. And then, of course, we would get Sarah calling from the bathroom saying, Tom's going to kill me. Well, then she shouldn't have been such a twerp. <laughs> and you yelling in the background, Sarah, do you have the, the cordless phone in the bathroom again? Like I said, she shouldn't have been such a twerp. <laughs> All right, the other thing I wanted to just quickly hit on, we're going to obviously go into much greater detail when we do our annual Oscars episode at the beginning of March. But just kind of recapping the Oscar nominations that have been out for a little over a week when we're recording this, they will have been out for about two weeks when this comes out. But any big surprises for you among the general nominees? I know the top 10 of the actual ones nominated for Best Picture 
for the most part, these are 10 of the films that we thought were going to be in there. I don't think there were any great surprises for me in that. No, well, a, a couple of things. Um, first of all, I'm going to pat myself on the back because I told you when I saw All Quiet on the Western Front, it would get nominated. You kind of went, eh, and I'm like, I was right because I think it's a really good film. I think it will win Best Foreign Film. I think it well, deserves to be Well, it's almost a shoe-in at this point for Best Foreign Film. But uh, a couple of surprises. Um, number one is, is that I thought for sure Tom Cruise would get a nomination for Best Actor. Simply as kind of a tip of the cap to his career. Um, surprised that he didn't get it. Viola Davis for The Woman King did not get nominated, which I was a little bit surprised. A couple of snubs in general. Uh, women Talking for Best Picture. I thought that was a little, I, I was a little bit surprised by that. Uh, and then just the sheer overall, Babylon didn't get hardly any nominations. Uh, it kind of got dead panned by the Academy. Well, I'm not surprised by Babylon so much because I think it was a very divisive movie. And that's not normally stuff that's going to get, or that's not normally a film that's going to get rewarded by a Academy that really likes generally appealing films. That's why, at least for the almost 95-year history of the Academy Awards, we've generally gotten mostly top-performing films of that year, up until maybe the last 10 or 15 years. They were all near the top of the box office if they were going to get nominated. One of the few surprises that I would have is I wasn't sure whether the Andrea Riseborough campaign was going to pay off she got a Best Actress nomination at the, or in the place of two black women. I think that was one that kind of surprised everybody. One that didn't surprise me when the actual nomination came out, but the late surge that she had was Anna de Armas for Blonde. I didn't understand that kind of campaign that was going on late on, but after she got a SAG nomination, it was almost assured that she was going to get into that category. I thought it was a little interesting. You could have predicted four out of the five director nominations, but I was very curious to see Ruben Osland actually was nominated for Triangle of Sadness for director. That one was a little different for me because I was not necessarily expecting him to get in. Uh, a little known actor in a film that has been a critic darling, but hasn't been seen by the general public. I have still not yet seen the film, but it's been on a lot of people's top 10 lists is After Sun and Paul Mezcal getting a Best Actor nomination for that. That was a little bit surprising to me. Not necessarily who got nominated, but what film got nominated. Empire of Light's only nomination was for Roger Deakins, probably the greatest cinematographer we've ever had, getting nominated for Empire of Light. That was surprising to me. Brian Tyree Henry for a little-known Apple TV Plus movie called Causeway starring Jennifer Lawrence getting nominated in Best Supporting Actor and Judd Hirsch getting nominated, but Paul Dano missing out. That was a surprise to me. Other than that, I mean, for the most part, I don't think there are a ton of surprises. Most of the technical awards, we kind of understood where they were going to go. I guess one of the few that I would say for cinematography or visual effects would have been Top Gun Maverick not making it into cinematography. And I think at this point, the odds-on favorite to win cinematography is another movie that you called before, All Quiet on the Western Front. So you were ahead of the curve on that one as well. I will say, though, 
she said, does not appear anywhere on this list. <laughs> I liked it. Okay. In retrospect, I think it's, um, you're probably right that it wasn't as well done as other films and it could have been done better. I did think having seen the whale this weekend, uh, Hong, is it Hong Chow? I believe so. Yes. Deserves the, uh, nomination. She was phenomenal in the film. Brendan Fraser was just, (laughs) I mean, the film itself had holes because there was some plot problems that I thought was there. There was some acting that was eh, okay. But the two of them that were nominated for acting awards, Fraser Fraser and Chow, were phenomenal. Um, And I think they deserve the nominations. In fact, I think I've seen all but one of the best actor nominations so far. And that would no, be, no, you, Bill... you haven't gotten to two of them. Okay. I haven't seen Bill Nye. Nye. I guess Nye? that, yeah, apparently I was mispronouncing it for years. It's apparently Nye. Okay. You haven't seen Paul Mezcal for after sun either. No, that's available in streaming or on, uh, I think it might be on VOD that you can buy yeah, at this point it in time, is. but I'm I not to... sure how much it is or, it's like uh, seven no, bucks or six six ninety nine. Okay, that's how I ended up watching Two Leslie, which I thought was phenomenal. I I really loved her performance. The only other thing that I will say that was surprising to me, we have five first time nominees in the best actor category, and sixteen out of the twenty acting category nominees are all first time nominees. Wow, I guess I didn't realize that. Yeah, the only one that I can think of that has been previously nominated, so Kate Blanchett is obvious. Judd Hirsch got nominated for Ordinary People 43 years ago. <laughs> he was good in that. He was but exceptional I, it, in that movie. Yes, and quite frankly, though, Judd Hirsch in The Fablemans stood out more than any other actor in that film. But I can't think of too many other big narratives coming out of the nominations for what these movies are going to be. I think it's kind of following a similar thread to what I thought for most of the year, which was you have a lot of the big budget films, the stuff that people are going to tune in to see, like is Top Gun Maverick going to get awarded anything? Is Avatar 2 going to get awarded anything? Because those are the two most successful movies of last year. Black Panther 2 is going to almost certainly get Best Supporting Actors for Angela Bassett. It's going to be the first acting nomination, or not nomination, but acting win for a Marvel movie. You're going to have some of those big box office draws at the top of the show, but you're almost counteracting it with all of the other nominees, like these very small, intimate films that really only you and I see, like Living or Women Talking the Fablemans, you know, that don't make a lot of money. And somewhere in between, I think that's where everything everywhere all at once is going to end up dominating the space. Because not only was it a popular movie that a lot of people saw, not nearly to the extent of Top Gun Maverick or Avatar 2, but still a good grossing movie that also felt niche and artistic. And I think that's why it's going to end up owning a large portion of that night. But I will say, because Ki Hui Kwan, I can't say that very fast, 
is going to almost certainly win Best Supporting Actor, and that award is very early on in the night. If you don't have Harrison Ford come out to do the nomination reading of the winner, you are missing a golden opportunity. He presents awards almost every other year, and you have to give that moment of short round and Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones on stage giving him an Oscar. It has to happen. Please. I'm speaking it into existence. It needs to happen. I would definitely agree, and quite frankly, everything is likely to win Best Picture. It's the favorite at the moment. The only one I think that has a potential for challenging it would be a late surge for uh, Banshees. Well, I don't think that it needs much of a surge. It's kind of right there if you ask certain people, but it's the only other movie that people could really see making a a true title threat. The difference is going to be we're still not past the Guild Awards, which is going to really dominate the conversation. But we're going to get to much more of that when we do our Oscar prediction show in a month from now. We just wanted to touch on this briefly since the nominations had come out and we hadn't talked about it yet. Let's get into our movie then for the evening. Citizen Kane, written, directed, and starring Orson Welles with Joseph Cotton as Jedediah Leland, Dorothy Comingor as Susan Alexander Kane, Ruth Warwick as Emily Monroe Norton Kane, Agnes Moorhead as Mary Kane, Ray Collins as Jim W. Geddes, Erskine Sanford as Herbert Carter, Everett Sloan as Mr. Bernstein, William Allen as Jerry Thompson, Paul Stewart as Raymond Keynes Butler, George Coloris as Walter Parks Thatcher, Fortunio Bonanova as Senor Matiste, Harry Shannon as Jim Kane, Kane's father, Sonny Bupp as Charles Foster Kane III, his son, and Buddy Swan as Charles Foster Kane the Younger. Recognition for this movie, Citizen Kane has been frequently cited as the greatest film ever made. For 50 consecutive years, it stood at number one in the British Film Institute's Sight and Sound decennial poll of critics, and it topped the American Film Institute's 100 Years 100 Movies list in 1998, as well as its update in 2007. During the 1941 Academy Awards, Citizen Kane was nominated in nine categories, Best Picture, Director, and Actor for Orson Welles, Original Screenplay for Wells and Herman Mankiewicz, Art Direction, Cinematography, Editing, Original Score, and Sound. It only won for Best Original Screenplay by Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles. Citizen Kane is often praised for Greg Tolan's cinematography, Robert Wise's editing, Bernard Herman's music, and its narrative structure, all of which have been considered innovative and precedent-setting. Although it was a critical success, Citizen Kane failed to recoup its costs at the box office. The film faded from view after its release, but it returned to public attention when it was praised by fringe critics such as André Bazin and re-released in 1956. In 1958, the film was voted number nine on the prestigious Brussels 12 list at the 1958 World Expo. In 1962, it was first voted at number one on the prestigious Sight and Sound poll and would hold its number one place until unseated by Vertigo in 2012. Citizen Kane was selected by the Library of Congress as an initial inductee of the 1989 inaugural group of 25 films for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Citizen Kane currently holds a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes among critics, 
a 100 score on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So, Dad, let's start here. This is notably the directorial debut of Orson Welles. Where does this rank for you among the greatest directorial debuts? And for a potential list, I'll just give you a few names here that we'll throw out. Maltese Falcon for John Huston, Reservoir Dogs for Quentin Tarantino, Mean Streets for Martin Scorsese. We just did Get Out last week for Jordan Peele. 12 Angry Men for Sidney Lumet. The Shawshank Redemption for Frank Darabont. This is Spinal Tap for Rob Reiner. And American Beauty for Sam Mendes. For me? Well, first of all, let me just add one more to that potential list. What do you consider Spielberg's first film? At worst, it's Sugarland Express. Okay. I mean, it, it depends on whether you consider his first film being that TV movie he made in, like, 71. I think Sugarland Express has to be there before Jaws, though. Okay. So, if you're going to go that way, then, this is by far the best. This is the number one as far as directorial debut. And it's primarily because of the fact that Wells negotiated a deal with RKO Radio Films that gave him carte blanche. And so he had to do what he could do, whatever he wanted or not wanted. And, you know, other directors don't. But looking at it, if I were to rank these, I would say number two is Maltese Falcon with John Huston, 12 Angry Men with Sidney Lumet, American Beauty with Sam Mendes, and Reservoir Dogs with Quentin Tarantino. I think the other films are great films, but I think. As far as a directorial debut, I think they got better as they went along. I think that uh, the films that they did initially were good, and if not great films. It's just they got better as they went along. So I think that Orson Welles did his best work right off the bat and spent the next 40 years trying to replicate it. I don't have too many arguments with your list. I think as far as quality... And the historical angle, I would probably be forced to put this one first. I probably would quibble with you a little bit on the ordering of your list. I probably would have 12 Angry Men at 2. I'd have Maltese Falcon at 3. And then I'd probably put Shawshank in there, which I was surprised to see that that was actually Darabont's directorial debut. Well, the only reason I I, I didn't include him is because not only his debut... The other films he has done don't even come anywhere close to the same level. He's been basically doing horror films since. But I just judge it based on that one movie as opposed to what his career was. Yeah. And if that's the case, I think that one movie stands out, at least in the public consciousness, as probably a greater film than some of the other ones we've mentioned. I could buy that. This film is also famous for its cinematography and editing. And I wonder, how do you think movie making changed after Citizen Kane? Well, the montage, putting the newsreel at the beginning as a way of providing within a very compact period an entire history that you do not have to convey through story and interview. 
the cinematography. Just from the opening scene, you knew this was something unique. When they zoom in on the gate and it's the K on the thing and the slow pan up to look in at Xanadu at, uh, in the background, the long shot. Um, I know for a fact this is something that has been talked about. There's the scene in about the middle of the film where Kane loses his money during the Depression and he walks across the room in the windows when he's in the foreground, he's a giant within the, the, the frame. And, but as he walks across the windows overshadow him as he announces that he's got no choice, but to sign over his newspaper uh, syndicate because of his debts. I mean, stuff like that. This is just a master's class in filmmaking. So this, the technique that you're specifically talking about is deep focus, which became kind of a staple of movies for probably the next decade or two. I don't think there are as many filmmakers using that type of film technique or cinematography anymore, but it is remarkable because it was a technique that wasn't necessarily new, but it was one that featured it a lot and used a lot of different camera angles. One of the few things that really stuck out to me as I was watching this is what is going on in the background in a lot of these scenes. Now I heard that, or maybe saw in some of my background study for the film, the scene where he's seen playing outside of the window as all of the adults are discussing his future was actually a projection screen and then used deep focus to have him. But the fact that you can see his, the little boy playing out in the snow by himself doing all of that gives you a lot of extra things expositionally that you wouldn't have otherwise had. I know we have the, the early cut of that scene and then we have him hitting the banker with his sled, but that gives a little bit more weight when you see him kind of playing around in the snow in the background as they're all discussing his future. And it really aids to the whole notion of what Rosebud actually takes on a certain meaning by the end of the film. Similarly, when he's doing the party for the newspaper and he's with all of the dancers or whatever, you can always see him reflected in the background of the windows that Leland and Mr. Bernstein are discussing him, but he's there enjoying his time. And there's a lot of shots like that. I think the montage is another big one because that was something that was kind of new for this film. I think specifically the breakfast montage is often cited as a fairly innovative part of movie making. I think the musical score was different because instead of having one score that was tracked throughout the movie, which had been done since the time of the silent films, you were able to have one that enhanced certain moments in the film, but didn't necessarily play throughout. And so it actually created what a lot of people thought was a radio score complementing a movie for the first time. You can talk about the sound effects that they had during this movie. I mean, there's just a lot of different techniques to the movie making outside of what the narrative structure was, which is a lot of flashbacks, which again, had been used before, particularly during the German period of the 20s and early 30s, but had never really had all of these elements combined. And one has to think that you borrow from Orson Welles' own quotes on this movie. 
he doesn't accept praise for how good most people think Citizen Kane is because he thinks that it was just out of his pure ignorance that they stumbled across doing this. He didn't know any better, and so he let people just kind of run wild with all these creative techniques. Well, okay. Orson Welles was 25 years old when this film was done. Orson Welles had been probably one of the most successful radio personalities there was at that time. And in addition, in like 1939-1940, Orson Welles was doing shows on NBC, Mutual, and CBS. Plus, he was on stage in New York. And so he was the first person, I think, that used this, which is he rented an ambulance and would use the siren so that he could get from one place to the other because he would have, at times, a half an hour between shows that he was doing on radio. So he implemented all of this, theater and radio, to the sound effects, theater with the lighting. And then you add in the fact that the time you really see innovation and change is when you get a group of people who have talent but don't know what they're doing. They're not confined by the typical, you know, you can't do that mentality because that's not the way we do it. Or have no ties to any of the traditions that came before them. Yes. And I've seen that even in my own law practice because, I mean, I had to learn most of what I do by just doing it. And so there was a lot of times that I did things that, in retrospect, I go, boy, that was ballsy because I had no idea what I was doing. I just did it. So what is your relationship to this movie? Well, that's always a good question. This is a film that I had always heard about and wanted to see. And I think, if I remember right, this was released on VHS in the mid-80s. may have been about 82, 83. And I happened to find it in a VHS rack, probably at a grocery store or convenience store or something, which is about where you got your VHSs at that time. And I rented it and watched it. And remember the first time seeing it, being absolutely blown away because it was something that something that I had never seen before in film. And so I started comparing a lot of film to it and uh, kept talking about it for years and have been able to see it periodically. When it was available on DVD, I bought a copy. I think I may have had a VHS copy at one time too, but so that's my relationship. I specifically remember I was in my first or second year of college and seeing this at like family video or blockbuster or whatever and renting it because it's got this gigantic legacy and name recognition. And I'm like, all right, I should probably see this movie at some point. This is really before I kind of committed myself to more of a cinephile of sorts. But this is one of those early ones where you're like, all right, this has got such a reputation. Let's watch it. And I remember about a half an hour in thinking, God, this movie is so fucking boring. (laughs) And I proceeded to sit through the rest of the movie out of almost sheer spite to say that I'm like, why does anybody think this is great? And kept looking at my watch to see how much was left. And I 
struggled my way through it, but my relationship to this movie has been somewhat of an antagonizing one. It has slowly gotten better as I've had a better appreciation for movies. It's not nearly as boring as the first time. I still have my difficulty with Kane as a tragic figure. These, these aren't the types of movies that I gravitate to, the ones where people are their own worst enemies. The the tr- This is a Greek tragedy of sorts, but it has taken on a different life with each time that I've had to revisit it. So what is this movie about? Well, it depends. Do you want the dime store psychology or do you want the autobiographical or biography version? Well, we don't need to tie it into the William Randolph Hearst of it all because even Wells has admitted that, yes, it has a lot of similarities to that, but he also tied it into several robber barons of the time or industry leaders. Yes, and I understand that. And I guess that's the point is, is it's a film that's about people who are trying to seek power through wealth and what they can accomplish or not accomplish. But by the same token, it conveys an impression as to why they're that way. Ultimately, and I'll get into that with quotes, the entire film is Cain wrongly, I think, seeking appreciation or love that he failed to get as a child. And he perceives that as, as well, if I, I'm just strong enough and, and powerful enough, the public will love me. And so it's an expose not only of power and how you accomplish it and how it can distort and destroy, but why you seek it to begin with. One of the things that I really think would be enlightening to the movie, I know that the title is fairly strong in the legacy connotation. I mean, the the title evokes a certain image immediately in the mind. I still am questioning what the title exactly means or is supposed to mean. And therefore, I go back to the original working title from the script, The American, as to what I really think this film is about. Because I think, in a way, this takes to task our collective American obsession with wealth, greed, popularity, fame, and celebrity as things that we think will bring us love and admiration, but ultimately leave us bitter and alone if we focus solely on those things. And the thing is, with every new generation, we get our next set of Charles Foster Canes. Yes. Insert Elon Musk for Charles Foster Kane, Donald Trump, Mark Zuckerberg, or if you want to go backward... Go to any of the major Wall Street guys from the 80s and 90s. Just swap out Gordon Gecko for Charles Foster Kane, and it's the same guy. We've had this for movies for 80 years. Rupert Murdoch. Well, not American, but still, yeah. Well, technically, I think he is American now. I think he has citizenship, doesn't he? I don't believe so. I thought he was still Australian. I know he's not Australian. He may be British. Yeah. But let's give a little bit more background on the movie. Do you have a plot summary for us? I do. When the newspaper baron, Charles Foster Kane, Orson Welles, one of the wealthiest and most powerful men in America, if not the world, dies, a journalist starts to dig into his past 
seeking the meaning of his last word, Rosebud. As he interviews Kane's family and friends, a picture of a wealthy, idealistic, but deeply flawed and dark man appears. The stories of Jedediah Leland, Joseph Cotton, Kane's best friend and confederate, Susan Alexander Kane, Dorothy Gore, Kane's second wife, and Mr. Bernstein, Everett Sloan, Kane's friend and manager, share a complex series of stories about Kane and his life. But do they really understand Kane and the meaning of Rosebud? Thank you. Did you know? Despite all the publicity, the film was a box office flop and was quickly consigned to the RKO vaults. At the 1941 Academy Awards, the film was booed every time one of its nine nominations was announced. It was only re-released to the public in the mid-1950s. Did you know? The camera looks up at Charles Foster Kane and his best friend Jedediah Leland, and down at weaker characters like Susan Alexander Kane. This was a technique that Orson Welles borrowed from John Ford, who had used it two years previously on Stagecoach. Welles privately watched Stagecoach about 40 times while making this film. Did you know? The film's opening with just the title and no star names was unprecedented in 1941. It is now the industry norm for Hollywood blockbusters. Did you know? During filming, Orson Welles received a warning that William Randolph Hearst had arranged for a naked woman to jump into his arms when he entered his hotel room, and there was also a photographer in the room to take a picture that would be used to discredit him. Welles spent the night elsewhere, and it is unknown if the warning was true. Did you know? On the night the movie opened in San Francisco, Orson Welles found himself alone with William Randolph Hearst in an elevator at the city's Fairmont Hotel. Aware that his father and Hearst were friends, Welles extended an invitation to the magnet to attend the film's premiere. Hearst turned down the offer, and as he was about to exit the elevator at his floor, Welles remarked, Charles Foster Kane would have accepted. Did you know? Originally, the movie was going to be based on the life of Howard Hughes with Joseph Cotton in the lead. Eventually, Orson Welles realized nobody would believe most of the stuff Hughes had done, so he decided to make Kane a media baron instead. Did you know? According to Ruth Warwick, Orson Welles was not in good shape at the beginning of the production. When principal photography began, Welles was suffering from the effects of caffeine poisoning as the result of consuming 30 to 40 cups of coffee a day. Wells then switched to tea, figuring that the hassle of having to brew the beverage would naturally limit his intake. But Wells had someone on call to brew the tea for him, and within two weeks, Wells was the color of tannic acid. It was also reported that he would go for long periods without eating, then put away two or three large steaks with side items at one sitting. Did you know? One subplot, discarded from the final film, concerns Susan Alexander Kane having an affair that Kane discovers said to be based on Marion Davies' rumored affair with Charles Chaplin. There were scenes written and storyboards designed for this sequence, though as rumors of William Randolph Hearst's ire grew, Orson Welles ordered the sequence deleted from the script. He refused to discuss the real reasons for its removal in any public forum throughout his life, even long after Hearst's death, as he claimed events of the subplot were so scandalous they could cost him his life. Privately, however, he did discuss the subject with his close friend, Peter Bogdanovich. According to Bogdanovich, the danger of the subplot stemmed not from the affair, but of its result. Wells claimed that Davies did in fact have an affair with Chaplin, and Hearst learned of it while on a trip on Hearst's yacht with Davies, Chaplin, and a number of other celebrity guests. 
Wells asserted that Hearst walked into a room and saw Davies and Chaplin having sex. He pulled a gun and Chaplin ran out of the room onto the deck. Hearst fired at Chaplin, but accidentally shot pioneering producer-director Thomas H. Insay, who shortly afterward died from the wound. An elaborate cover-up followed. Supposedly, columnist Luella Parsons was on board and witnessed the killing, and Hearst promised her a job with him for life if she kept her mouth shut, and she did. The legend became the basis for Bogdanovich's own film, The Cat's Meow, from 2001. And with that, we will take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are discussing the action franchise that redefined Keanu Reeves' career, John Wick from 2014. Directed by Chad Stahelski, written by Derek Kolstad, starring Keanu Reeves, Adrian Palicki, Willem Dafoe, John Leguizamo, and Ian McShane. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. All right, Dad, we have best performance up first. Can we just get this out of the way and say it's Orson Welles? Of course. Director, writer, star. Exactly. It's his movie. He helps come up with the musical nature of the movie. He comes up with the sound. He helps write the story or at least good portions, although that is up for debate, uh, depending on whether you believe Pauline Kael's article on this or essay on this. He directs the movie. He stars in the movie. He helps create maybe one of cinema's great movies of all time. It's his movie. Let's move on. He's best performer. Yes. Secondary performer for you. Greg Toland. Uh, The cinematography is just absolutely phenomenal in this. Everything from the light rays coming down when he's looking at the uh, the diary in the library. I mean, everything about it. The fact that the reporters are never seen in full uh, view. They're always in shadow. There's a question as to who did the lighting or who is more responsible for the lighting. I saw it that it was written that Orson Welles was primarily more interested in the lighting aspects of it because he thought he was trying to light it like a theater production. And so that has an effect on it. But I also saw somewhere that Tolan also would go around and fix certain pieces of lighting as he wanted them. But either way, it's a hand in hand production between the two and some of the different camera techniques, the low angles versus the high angles that they shoot everything from. And certainly the ambiance that it creates in this one. I took a page out of your book and actually gave him most charismatic because I think the biggest tone set for the the film is its camera work. So for best secondary, I had Robert Wise. I think this is a masterfully edited movie. Honestly, there are some just great moments, not even just from the cuts, but being able to know exactly how long to hold on certain shots And I know he said specifically that he doesn't feel he deserves a lot of credit for the editing because Toland and Orson Welles apparently did a lot of the editing work through what they actually shot. That was his opinion. But I think that if you cut to the piecing together of that montage scene, which apparently took them like three weeks to edit correctly, and this isn't the days of digital where that would take you maybe a half an hour That is impressive, and I think this movie is cut together in 
just the exact right way it needed to be in order to present in this way. There are some very quick, sharp cuts, and I know there are some stylistic choices, but I think even more than the music and the sound, one of the things that's noticeable to me as I rewatched it this time was just the editing is so crisp. You've already given your most charismatic, so I'll go with mine, which is Orson Welles. I don't think people now understand how big of a star Orson Welles was at that time. He just was, he was omnipresent. He was on every radio network. He was on the New York stage. He was on, or doing now movies. So, huge. So it would be like a combination of, I'm trying to think what would be a good stage actor. Hugh Jackman crossed with Joe Rogan and Tom Cruise. About right. I'm not, that's not far off. I've spent a lot of time in the last 15, 20 years listening to old radio broadcasts simply because it's an era of entertainment that I wanted to know more about. And he was like everybody's great guest star. When Jack Benny was ill for a while, they got Orson Welles to fill in for him. And Jack Benny had the number one or two radio show pretty much throughout the 40s. That's just the way it was. And then the War of the Worlds broadcast brought such acclaim that he, he everybody knew who Orson Welles was. I'm going to give a special category shout out to Joseph Cotton, just because I enjoy him in just about every film he's in. Even the first time that I saw this and thought this was boring, one of the few characters that stood out to me was Joseph Cotton. And I think he is extraordinary in a film we will eventually cover, The Third Man, which I'm looking forward to very much because of his performance. So just kind of a secondary charismatic I almost went with him, but I just couldn't pass up Wells. Best scene, I have a few different nominees. Let's see here. Five, ten nominees. And I think this covers pretty much all the important moments in the film. So the cold open, as you already mentioned, with the gate and flashing on Xanadu. Then news on the march, which, again, is iconic. We have the young Kane scene with his mother and his father and trying to send him away. The statement of principles scene, the breakfast montage, which we've mentioned many times already, Candidate Kane, where he gives the speech from the stage, Susan Alexander, Leland is fired. So I guess I should back up. The Susan Alexander is more referring to kind of the downfall of Kane, the scene where he's confronted with Gettys and then Eventually, as that kind of story plotline moves forward, Leland is fired, as I mentioned. Susan leaves, and then what I refer to as the remnants of Xanadu, so basically the fire at the end of the movie. What do you think is the best scene? I love uh, News on the March, the newsreel film set, because I just thought it was so well done. It had the same feel as a newsreel and it did such a great job of providing you with so much of the background information you need that the rest of the film did not have to overreach to fill in the blanks uh, as to what was going on. 
I'm going to go with the breakfast montage. You're telling 16 years worth of story in two minutes. I mean, that's extraordinary by itself, but I think that was the scene that really stuck out to me in this particular viewing, just because it's exposition without being exposition. You can see the slow deterioration of one marriage, and it makes sense. It's the slow deterioration of most marriages. And all told through two minutes, I mean, that could have almost been a silent film, and yet it isn't, and it's still wonderfully well done. And it's also probably my favorite scene that was on this viewing, at least. My favorite scene was the newsreel. Again, for the very reasons I've indicated, I thought it was best done, and I just always remember it. That's another one where it's exposition without being exposition. Yes. Covers all the important parts of the movie so that it's filling in the blanks from there on. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it so classic. The most indelible moment for me is the remnants of Xanadu. The final moments as we flash on Rosebud and see the paint kind of bubbling and peeling. That's always stuck out for me about this film. Well, that's always what I remember is the fire and Rosebud, which um, ultimately is the destruction of the one last thing that kept him or that was the reason why he did everything. So allegedly, I think I saw a story where one of the replica production sleds is owned by Steven Spielberg. Yes, he did donate it to the Academy for their museum. Which was classy of him. Yes. All right, let's take a quick second break and we will be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, and before we get to the Stanley rubric in a minute... If you're ever curious about our Master Greatest Movies of All Time list that this show is about, there's a link in the episode description of every episode of this show, or you can go to RonnieDuncanStudios.com and find it at the top entry on the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast page that has the grades we've done so far for all 150 movies we've graded, and we continue to add more each week. Make sure to check that out as we go and follow along. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. Barrett Strong, 81 American singer, did uh, Money, That's What I Want, and was a songwriter. Heard it through the grapevine, and uh, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Huge R&B songs. Sylvia Sims, 89 English actress, At Home with the Breathwaites, The Queen, Ice Cold and Alex, and East Enders. Floyd Sneed, 80. Canadian drummer was with Three Dog Night. Annie Wershing, 45, American actress, was in TV's uh, 24, The Last of Us. The video game as opposed to the TV show, and she was the voiceover for some characters. I guess she did a lot of voiceover work. Gregory Allen Howard, 70, American screenwriter and film producer, Remember the Titans, Ali, and Harriet. Lisa Loring, 64, American actress. The Adams Family, Blood Frenzy, and As the World Turns. She was uh, the little girl in The Adams Family. The original Wednesday. Yes. And then lastly, Cindy Williams, 75, American actress. Laverne and Shirley in American Graffiti. Shamil Shalazel, Austin Pfeffer Incorporated. And so we have a moment of silence here for all those we've mentioned for their contributions to the arts, music, and film. 
Thank you. Let's go to best funniest lines. Jedediah Leland. I can remember everything. That's my curse, young man. It's the greatest curse that's ever been inflicted on the human race. Memory. Bernstein. A fellow will remember a lot of things you wouldn't think he'd remember. You take me. One day back in 1896, I was crossing over to Jersey on the ferry. As we pulled out, there was another ferry pulling in. And on it, there was a girl waiting to get off. A white dress she had on. She was carrying a parasol. I only saw her for one second. She didn't see me at all. But I'll bet a month hasn't gone by since that I haven't thought of that girl. Bernstein again. Old age. It's the only disease, Mr. Thompson, that you don't look forward to being cured of. Keep the string alive, Bernstein. Well, it's no trick to make a lot of money, if all you want is to make a lot of money. Female reporter. If you could have found out what Rosebud meant, I bet that would have explained everything. Jerry Thompson. No, I don't think so, no. Mr. Kane was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. Maybe Rosebud was something he couldn't get, or something he lost. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. No, I guess Rosebud is just a piece in a jigsaw puzzle, a missing piece. Leland. He married for love. Love. That's why he did everything. That's why he went into politics. It seems we weren't enough. He wanted all the voters to love him, too. Guess all he really wanted out of life was love. That's Charlie's story, how he lost it. You see, he didn't have any to give. Well, he loved Charles Kane, of course, very dearly, and his mother. I guess he always loved her. Kane. Rosebud. Kane. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,634 shares of public transit. You see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can, form such a committee. Put me down for a contribution of $1,000. Kane. Mr. Carter, if the headline is big enough, it makes the news big enough. Kane, you're right. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at that rate, a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. Kane, the news goes on for 24 hours a day. Kane, I was on my way to the Western Manhattan warehouse in search of my youth. You see, my mother died a long time ago, and her things were put in storage out west. There wasn't any other place to put them. I thought I'd send for them now. Tonight, I was going to take a look at them. You know, a sort of sentimental journey. I'm out. Kane, a toast. Jedediah, to love on my terms. Those are the only terms anybody ever knows. His own. Thompson. Everybody knows that story, Mr. Leland, but why did he do it? How could a man write a notice like that? Leland. You just don't know Charlie. He thought that by finishing that notice, he could show me he was an honest man. He was always trying to prove something. The whole thing about Susie being an opera singer. That was trying to prove something. You know what the headline was the day before the election? 
candidate found in a love nest with a quote singer unquote. He was going to take the quotes off the singer. Why does your impression of Joseph Cotton sound like he was in Deliverance? Well, okay. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> That's all I have. I'm done. All right. Let's go to the Stanley rubric then and grade this one out. Do you want to start? Sure, I'll go uh, first. Legacy. Industry. Five. The technique. The career of Tolan and of Weiss. And of Wells, for that matter. The fact of how this influenced so many directors, both in the United States and abroad. Completely a five. For the public, however... I just made another little asking around. I'm amazed as to how many people go, oh yeah, Citizen Kane. That's a great film. Have you ever watched it? No. Public. Two. That's the downfall. No one has seen this film. Other than people who are cinemaphiles, no one has seen the film. And I use the term... This is like Mark Twain said, a classic is something that everybody wants to have read and nobody wants to read. I thought it was everybody wants on their shelf, but has never read. Okay. I looked for it in the, I've seen different ways it's quoted. That was one I always thought, but the other one was a book which people praise, but don't read. So I've seen different ones where they're quoted to Twain. But again, that's the thing that's involved here is everybody talks about it, but nobody watches it. All right. Because of the name recognition, I would think a two is out of the question. I think that's just drastically low. The fact that you've heard of a film from 1941 and have at least some concept of where it is in the greatest movie of all time, Pantheon, gives it some level of credence, regardless of whether you've seen it or not. And so I agree with your five. The industry, that's just a given. So we're really haggling over the audience share. Now, be it from me to argue up Citizen Kane because <laughs> you know I've had my complicated and antagonistic relationship with this film. But <sighs> you may not have seen this movie, but you've seen a lot of elements of this movie. You've seen the score be reutilized by a lot of people. If you've ever seen a Hitchcock film, you know that the work by the composer from this film is translated to pretty much every one of the biggest Hitchcock movies going forward. Dimitri Tempenkin. That's who did most of Hitchcock's It's Tiomkin, and no, no, this composer did. On this film, but you're saying Hitchcock. I am, because he was on most of Hitchcock's biggest movies. Um, okay. All right. Since you're trying to doubt me on this, let me just pull up what he actually is known for here. He did the work for Vertigo, North by Northwest, Psycho, The Man Who Knew Too Much, the second one, and Taxi Driver. Is that enough for you? And that was whom? Bernard Herrmann, the composer for this film. And I think that, to a degree, John Williams, in his entire huge career is on the backing of Bernard Herrmann from this movie. Okay. The tracking shot as they're going over the neon sign in Atlantic City to look down through the window is reminiscent of things that I've seen from 
Spielberg movies, from Tarantino movies, from Scorsese movies. There are elements of this film throughout cinema history, and everything seems to be borrowing in some way their own homages to everything that was accomplished in this film. So from the name recognition and the lasting legacy, I think it overpowers what people have seen or not seen because I think this has bled through the culture of Hollywood for nearly 80 years. And so I'm conflicted between a nine and a half and a 10. I'm tempted to go a full 10 because I think trying to say that the legacy of Citizen Kane is anything less than a nine and a half would almost be criminal. (laughs) Okay. All right. You persuaded me to increase my number from from two for the public, I'll go with the three, but that's about the best I can do because, but I, I have a hard time with the public having a legacy. if They have no idea what the legacy is from. All right. Then I'm going to go a full 10 so that it balances out to a nine. Okay. Impact significance. This is where I think the movie suffers particularly the industry at the time. I think critically enjoyed the film. It obviously got a lot of nominations in an era where it wasn't a lot of the expanded categories that we have now. I'm not even sure there were five nominees for every category as it seems there are now. I think this might be the days yet where it was three to just about every category acting and otherwise. So for this movie to pull in nine nominations, I know it famously lost on just about everything to how green was my valley (laughs) But you're trying to unseat a giant in John Ford contemporaneously. That was going to be a very extraordinary thing to try and do. So I actually like How Green Was My Valley. I think it's an underrated Best Picture winner. But I know it's kind of gotten short shrift because it beats Citizen Kane. So it it kind of takes on a life of its own, like Shakespeare in Love. And Crash. So anyway, regardless of the uh, disgust that is currently on your face. I think a four for the audience or for the industry is warranted, but because this was a commercial flop and it took a little while for even audiences outside of America to really kind of bring this film back from the dead in a way, I'm going to go with a high two for a six overall. When you consider that, Within the next few years, we have the amazing Ambersons, or from Wells. We have a lot of the same techniques being done for the best years of our lives. I can't give it anything lower for impact for the industry when taking into account, again, the Academy Award nominations of 4.5. All right, you're correct on that, and maybe adjusted if you think of all the other tangential effects, it may even warrant a five. I I waffled between five and 4.5, but the fact that it lost so many of the nominations, I mean, if it would have won more than one, I would have went with a five. The public, let's face facts. Hearst newspapers controlled a huge portion of American media. Uh, between radio and television. And Hearst refused to put any 
information, run any ads, anything for this film. And so it was completely deadpanned by a lot. Not just that, but the critics who worked for Hearst newspapers deadpanned this. To show you, and I, I, I remember this specifically, I watched the TV show a lot at midnight with Chris Hardwick. Chris Hardwick famously married Lydia Hearst, the great granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. And one of the questions on the show, which was a fake game show, was Citizen Kane. And he looks into the camera and he says, Honey, I just want you to remember, I understand perfectly that this was a hatchet job on your great-grandfather, and I understand how the family feels about this, so I had nothing to do with the answer to this question. So please believe me, three generations later, they're still so pissed off about this film that it's affecting media. So that's why. So I went with a half point higher simply because it never got an opportunity to be disseminated in the public and talked about rationally. So I wanted a 2.5. So I'm going with a 4.5 and a 2.5, so 7. And I think, thinking about it again, industry-wise, I probably should have gone a 5, so I'll match your 7. So that's a 7 average between the two of us. Novelty, 10. Of course. There's nothing like it. We've talked about it ad nauseum already. You know, from the technique, the storytelling, the rest of it, I mean, th- there's really almost no point in discussing it. Classicness. I'm going to let you have carte blanche on this one first. <sighs> I thought about it and thought about it. It's a classic American story. It's a story of American wealth and American moguls and the whole concept of the Gilded Age and all of that. I went down because of the slap of Susan. Interesting. I did not pick up on that at all. I mean, I understand that this was a common thing, and it was not that unknown even in uh, in 1941. But, uh, you know, you just don't hit a woman. And so I went with a 9. I went between a 9 and a 9.5 with the markdown on that. So I'm going to split it with a 9.25. So I agree with all of your points as far as what brings this up. Given that this feels timeless, it feels authentic to every generation of Americans. We already talked about that it could be any of the current world's most wealthy men and be basically the same story. Insert Jeff Bezos for Charles Foster Kane. (laughs) Yeah. And so I thought I was very prepared to go full 10 and maybe haggle down to a 9.5 on the basis. One of my remaining questions is, would a mistress really tank someone's career, even in politics at this point in time? Um, what's her, uh, uh, Daniels, the porn star that slept with Trump? Oh, um, Stormy here. Stormy Daniels, yeah. Stormy Daniels? Yeah, I think so. She didn't really take his career. Well. I mean, I would think him sleeping with a porn star while married to somebody else is hardly grab him by the pussy, and he still got elected. Yeah, well, okay. I think that's the one area where this movie might come down, and I'll agree with your slap since that that is pointed out. I'm going to go a nine. 
So we're really splitting the baby with your 0.25. <laughs> well, I just wanted to make the math harder for you. So that's a 9.13 between the two of us. Rewatchability. This is an important film. It's still a film that I'm slowly growing in appreciation for. To be honest, the first half of this film, as I watch it, I'm like, maybe I was too hard on this. This actually isn't that bad. I'm growing to enjoy it. And then you get to about the point where he's found in the love nest, quote unquote. And the second half of the film is much tougher for me to get through. Again, Tragic Figures is never my true cup of tea. It's just harder watching. But that being said, I can take an appreciation and an historical reverence for the film and understanding all of the little technical parts of it, since I don't have to watch it much for the plot line anymore. So I went with a six. Oh. It's not a favorite movie of mine, but it is something I should rewatch more often. This is one where I'm thinking about it and I'm going, boy, is this one that I would watch? And I thought about it and... Quite frankly, I tend to watch this about once every 12 to 18 months because it is so well done. And you can pick, this is a film you can pick up in the middle and watch and figure out exactly where it is and understand the story. I've seen it so many times, I can just about lay out the, the scenes and even quote the film. It's not one that I'm going to necessarily gravitate to when I'm having a bad day, but it's a film that I'm going to watch if there's nothing, you know, if it's, I'm home and I want to watch something and I'm thinking, you know, there's Citizen Kane. Yeah, I'll watch that. So I'm going to go with an eight. So that's a seven average between the two of us. For audience score, we had an 82 for Google users and a 90 for Rotten Tomato users, giving us an 8.6. So to recap the categories, we had a 9 for Legacy, 7 for Impact Significance, 10 for Novelty, 9.13 for Classicness, 7 for Rewatchability, and an 8.6 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 50.73. And that would currently place it on our list between Ocean's Eleven and Wall-E. <laughs> uh, uh, it should be higher than that. It's in the 30s right now, Pop, and it's probably going to fall below that. In the 30s? In the 30s. Oh, God. It's below Network and Double Indemnity. (sighs) This is painful for me. Again, if you start to look at it category by category, how would you like to change it? I know. I mean, you were lower on the legacy than I was. I was fully ready to give it a 10. Classicness, I was ready to give it a 10, and then you kind of brought me a little bit down. I know. The rewatchability, you always knew it was going to be a, an uphill slug. And Impact Significance, we even came up a little bit. I know. And I, I mean, I tried to be as critical as I can, uh, or as I could, because, you know, this is one of the films that I've thought is, well, I've said all along that I thought this was the greatest film ever made. And you and I have argued, and, and you uh, you kept deadpanning it, and I'd roll my eyes and just shake my head and go, where did I go wrong, and blah, blah, blah. But uh, I know. I wanted to be critical and follow the rubric and follow the same procedure, and I really thought, 
long and hard. I spent a lot of time debating the categories this time. It wasn't anything that I just thought about and made a decision. I really thought long and hard and tried to be realistic so that it would be an accurate presentation of the of the rubric. To get inside our top seven right now, you'd have to average more than nine points per category. Wow. Well. And it's not just us. Again, the audience score, the Google ranking alone dropped it. So it was an 8.6. Yeah. I know. So I don't, I don't know how you would necessarily improve on this. I've maintained for a while it's not the greatest film. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. But this is why our list is different and I think a better, more rounded discussion. I mean, you could agree with how we've defined our categories, but it, based on what we have, other than rewatchability, I, uh, I think it's a much more accurate barometer of greatness. Well, how else other than our system are you going to put Blazing Saddles on the same par with uh, Best Years of Our Lives, uh, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and Casablanca? I think three of those movies are ahead of Citizen Kane. I know. All right. Remaining questions. Why Rosebud? I don't know. Why would that one word encompass everything that you want to be your representation of your lost childhood because that was what he was experiencing when you saw him he was enjoying his time on his sled i think it would have been a much more meaningful thing if it would have been like his puppy yeah obviously rosebud would be a terrible name for a puppy but you could insert any one word for that at the time maggie (laughs) sure I already asked, would having a mistress still be a scandal in 2023? I don't think it would be. I mean, it might run some headlines, but is it going to tank your political career? No. There would be a certain element of of society today would be going, yeah. Well, I also think it depends on which party you're coming from. If it's in in the Republican Party, nobody cares as long as you vote in the way they want you to. In the Democratic Party, you might be ostracized, but that's about it. Well, in the Republican Party, of course, it wouldn't matter if you were a family values candidate because you would still espouse and and cry like um, Jimmy Swaggart. I am sinning. You know, my God, who who believes this, really? So, how long did Cain live alone in Xanadu before he died? I don't know. I, I, I really don't know. I would say probably a decade. That seems about right. I mean, at a certain point, it became his mausoleum. Yes. It was just a question that occurred to me during watching the film. I'm like, how much time does it really pass between Susan leaving and the end of his life? It never really says. You wonder if that whole sequence from the news on the march where he's coming back from Europe is after his mar- his second marriage has collapsed. More likely than not. The remaining question I have is, why are you turning over your media empire to, uh, or to Thatcher when you have all those fucking statues and artworks and pieces around your house? Why aren't you selling? They're worth millions of dollars. Sell the damn things 
and at least pay off your debts so that you can keep your empire. It's a good point. Also, his first wife and his son, why do they have to narratively die? It's like a throwaway in the course of the film. I don't quite understand why they're just kind of written out. Because otherwise they would always be coming back. They would have, they would be, the potential would always exist that he would be able to recreate a relationship with his son as time passed and he needs to be isolated. But then why give him a son in the first place? Because he he was willing to sacrifice that, at least at the time, for his political career. The possibility exists later on in life where when that political career is gone, he may reach out. So give us at least one scene where he's devastated that, yet again, he's lost something important to him. His ex-wife and his son have tragically died. Just give us one scene. Yeah, well... I mean, you need two minutes, and the and the film was almost two hours long. If you add another two minutes, I don't think it's really going to make that much of a difference. There were scenes that were cut. I don't know. That takes care of all of my remaining questions. So, final thoughts for the week. I'm I'm uh, surprised as to how long we've actually gone, and I'm looking forward to next week. I have never seen John Wick. You've seen probably the first 15 minutes. Yes. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to having Rob. And is this his fifth? This is his fifth. Okay. He will be the second one into the club. Yes, I have to get the hats uh, made up. I have to take the logo. I have figured out how that goes about or how to go about doing that. I'm going to make up some hats. And I think as long as I'm at it, Maybe we should put some or try to figure out a way that if anybody's interested in getting a hat, they can purchase a hat from the website or something. But so I'll make because I think uh, the price of making up like 20 of them is about the same price as making up about a hundred. So, well, we have a few guests that will be pretty close to five by the end of the year. Yeah, Sarah's got to be close. Sarah might actually be at five now that I think about okay. it. She was on The Artist. She was on Inglorious Bastard. She was on Zodiac. She was on The Great Dictator. And she was on My Fair Lady. So there you go. She's already at five. Okay, so we have, yeah. And Allison's coming back for two more, so she'll be at four, I think, by the middle of this year. Yes. Keith will be getting closer. I think he's doing two this year, so that'll be two and three for him. Because he's only been on Saving Private Ryan so far. Okay, but I I, um, I have a few people that I would like to try to get as guests as myself, and um, I will be trying to lay some groundwork for that in the future. I'm looking forward to the remainder of this year, and uh, <laughs> we've got eleven months yet. Yeah, I know. <sighs> I'll be glad the next uh, few weeks. Oh, and by the way, I am looking forward to the Beloit Film Festival coming up. We went to that last year for part of it. I've, uh, I'm looking forward to this year. I haven't looked to see what the schedule holds, but I will be doing that here shortly. And uh, that will be at the end of February. So I'm going to just quickly recommend a new show that debuted last Friday, and the first two episodes are already up. If you have 
Apple TV Plus, I love the show Shrinking. Oh, yes. First off, I love Jason Siegel. Going back to his Judd Apatow days and How I Met Your Mother and a lot of other properties, he's in one of my favorite rom-com slash comedies, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, a a movie we will eventually get to during the course of the show. And so I was already going to be in on this show just because he's in it. I watched just about everything he's in. But then it is the same guys who write for Ted Lasso and Brett Goldstein and Bill Lawrence. And I have a longstanding relationship with Bill Lawrence going back to Scrubs. I know a show that you don't particularly care for, but still one that uh, is is very entertaining. And then throw in, you've got Harrison Ford. Now, I know he's doing a lot of things lately, a lot of different projects, but this might be the best use of Harrison Ford that we've had yet because it takes his being a cantankerous old coot and makes it a character within the course of the show. And yet he has such redeeming qualities. To me, especially the second episode of the show, he starts to take on a lot of the qualities of what Roy Kent is to Ted Lasso. And so I can already see this being one of my favorite shows of the year. It is very good. I've enjoyed it tremendously. And I'm just glad that even though this is supposed to be the final season of Ted Lasso, and I don't know when that's supposed to drop exactly. I've heard rumors that it's supposed to be sometime either late spring or into the summer. But, you know, at least we've got another show that can kind of take the mantle as the uh, lovable goofball. Yes. Even though it's dealing with some much heavier topics. Anyway, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. People keep asking me if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. So you can either hand over your son, or you can die screaming alongside him. Next week, we are discussing the action franchise that redefined Keanu Reeves' career. John Wick from 2014. Directed by Chad Stahelski, written by Derek Kolstad, starring Keanu Reeves, Adrian Palicki, Willem Dafoe, John Leguizamo, and Ian McShane. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at thenewronnieduncanstudios.com or sign up for our newsletter, find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM. 